We'll be in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. And let me, uh, uh, how many of you would agree that two years ago our, our presidential election 2016 was quite filled with a lot of emotion? Would you say that? A lot of people, it uh, doesn't matter what side you're on, but a lot of emotion. I mean, I remember people telling me they couldn't even talk with family members about the election because it just incited arguments and it excited uh, problems there. I was reading an article this week and I was reminded, oh, that's right, there were riots in Portland over this uh, election and things. And all kinds of things happened during that time. And then when I come to the book of Ephesians and I read even some of the verses and some of the words in here, uh, can we agree that some of the words in here like the elect and chosen and predestination can bring a lot of emotion among Christians? That we can gather together and and maybe some of you know that these words uh, Christians fight over and argue over. And my question is, is that what we are to do with a wonderful passage of Scripture We definitely can be people that need to challenge one another and and spend time in the Word together and and study. But there's a spirit about it that we go about when we look at God's Word. If there's a disagreement, then we need to disagree and do that in unity still. And there's certain things that, yes, we stand on, which is the gospel. We never compromise. But there are things about in God's Word that we may be able to disagree in and uh, have unity still in. And so this morning, what I share with you as I preach the Word of God, it, it, it affects me personally because I know that at age five, the gospel was declared to me, and at age five, I prayed and asked Jesus Christ to come into my life, and I asked Him to save me, and I know that my life was changed at that point. But yet, for years in my life, I battled with Ephesians chapter 1, and I battled with texts and passages in the book of Romans. I remember one of my college roommates, as we were studying for ministry, the things he shared with me out of Ephesians, I told him, you're going to go to hell for teaching stuff like that. And I used to argue, and I had such an angst in me, and I'll share with you some of those things, but I asked questions like this of God. Did God determine who will go to heaven and who will go to hell before he created the universe? I asked questions like, is God fair? Is God just? These were questions in my heart. And really the question in my heart, the center of it all was really, is God sovereign or am I sovereign over my life? And and I came to admit that I had a lot of pride in my life and I dared tell God that his plans were bad. And about 13, 14 years ago, in the middle of the night, two in the morning, I woke up and I couldn't sleep. It's like the Holy Spirit said, get up, read the book of Romans. And I said, I've read the book of Romans. I've had classes in seminary on book of Romans. I've read through it numerous times. And, and if you ask my wife, I like to sleep at 2 a.m. in the morning. And uh, I can sleep through even the kids coming in a lot of times and waking her up and needing something. And so I like to sleep. And I said, God, I don't want to read the book of Romans. But I got up and from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning, I read and wrestled and argued with God through the book of Romans until in the morning I relented. And I said, all right, God, you're sovereign. I don't understand it all, but I praise you. And God began to break some pride in me. And so this morning, as we look at a wonderful text which brings a lot of emotion, when you look at it, it's a glorious, wonderful text about how God has blessed us spiritually. So the big idea this morning, if you're following along, is this. 
Praise God for the spiritual blessings he has granted us through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read to you the first 14 verses of Ephesians 1 this morning and and know that we could camp out in these 14 verses for the next year or even longer. But today we're doing a a 30,000 foot flyover. Uh, We're not stopping at each town and checking each thing. And so I'm praying that we would see how God has blessed us and in turn our hearts would be driven by the Holy Spirit to praise Him. Uh, As we read this, know that verses 3 through 14, you may have periods and sentences in there. It's a Greek, in the Greek sentence, it's one long run-on sentence with 202 words in it. There's no periods in it. It's like this overflow of Paul's heart praising God. And so let's go to God's word, Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, And are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. Father, I pray that you would be praised this morning and that we would bless your name for salvation in you. We lift up your name and we ask that you would grant us great understanding and wisdom and discernment. Father, I have nothing to say, so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us and that your words would be clear to us this morning. Father, we ask a blessing on the preaching and the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As a believer, it's a great thing when you read through the New Testament to pay attention every time that you see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit mentioned. I know in in some of my Bibles, I will put a triangle or a mark that will remind me to pay attention that you have the Trinity pictured there, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so in this, we're going to see in verses 4 through 6, the Father and His work and what He does. In verses 7 through 12, the work of Jesus the Son. And in verses 13 through 14, the work of the Holy Spirit And so I want us to draw our attention to the first six verses and to understand that the Father has blessed us. The first point is that the Father has blessed us. Uh, The Apostle Paul 
uh, we will we'll learn more about him as we go through the book of Ephesians. But if you go and read the book of Acts, you will see an account historically of his life. Uh, he spent time in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey and uh, Asia Minor, that uh, it was in that time uh, second to the city of Rome, a, a great uh, city of Roman influence, uh, of culture. It had one of the seventh wonders of the world, the Temple of Diana. Uh, there was all kinds of false religions and beliefs and worship of false gods. And yet, if Ephesus is a place where you see a great movement of the gospel, that so many people came to Jesus, and the gospel went out from Ephesus and impacted the world. And so the Apostle Paul writes this in verse 1, and who does it say that he writes to in verse 1? Who is it to? All right, we got to get over this mumbling. I tell you every week, I ask you a question, and it's in the text. Look in the text. What's it say to who? The saints. The saints are the holy ones set apart. They're Christians, and they live there in Ephesus. They're people who have heard the gospel and believed in Jesus Christ and placed their faith in him and are saved. It says, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. They are faithful to following Christ in their life. And in verse 2, as in many of his other letters, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, making Jesus Christ a personal relationship that we can have. But he says, grace to you, this picture of the cross and peace which comes from uh, Jesus Christ that we can be at peace with God. But it says, our Father, and I would just point this out as we will continue to see this, the doctrine of the fatherhood of God is important because when we see that it says, our Father, uh, that we would understand this is referring to God as Father of all of his children who are believers. Not, as some people would say, oh, God is Father over everyone in this world. No, God the Father created everyone in this world, but He's only truly the Father to those who He's adopted and made His own. And so it's very powerful when we read that the Father has blessed us. And if you don't understand this, it might be hard for you to say, but if you're a Christian, you're a saint. You might be like, well, isn't that part of Roman Catholicism? Do you have saints? No, saints are holy ones set apart, Christians, and that is you and I. And look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father is the object of our praise when the Apostle Paul comes to this letter that he writes. And that we are to praise God because it says in verse 3, he has blessed us in who? How has he blessed us in who? Verse 3. Who's the who? Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual what? Blessing or benefit in the heavenly places. For the Christian, we are blessed to be in Christ because if you are not in Christ, you are not saved. And if you are apart from Christ, then you have only eternity to be separated from God. So only those who are in Christ have salvation and are blessed spiritually, which what he leads into. The spiritual benefits which we see here in the text, which he points out are election by the Father, redemption through the Son, Jesus, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And the source of these spiritual blessings 
are in the heavenly places. You see, Jesus Christ not only died and he rose again, but he ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. He is going to return. But we need to be reminded as believers, as saints today, that we have the spiritual blessings now. It's not that we're waiting for one day to be spiritually blessed. If you're a Christian, you are blessed spiritually now because of what God has done in his saving work. And if you stop there at verse 3, everyone's good up to that point. But then you get to verse 4. And that's where the trouble and the emotion, at least for me, started. And, and for many, battle today. It says, even as he did what? What's that word there? Chose. Oh, my. Scary word for some of us. We're afraid of that, right? Or uh, I have flashbacks to junior high and being chosen for sports. Basketball was great because I was tall, but baseball, I couldn't hit it. So it's like when they're choosing people, I'm like, don't let me be last. I'll try to hit the ball this time. Hey, I can catch it, but I can't hit. But again, those things come to my mind when I think of the word chose or he chose us or being chosen. And I would argue this today, that I've come to the point of something that I feared, something that struck with such great emotion in me is now something that strikes an emotion of assurance in Christ today. Something that is so wonderful when I see that God has a plan to save his people. And I would tell you this, that God did not do this choosing in a vacuum. That God, who knows all things, uh, uh, had this plan before time. And I remember thinking many years ago, what does God think about those people who are not chosen? Do they have a problem? What problem does he have with them? And yet I could not find any support in Scripture that God just does this random choosing. And actually, I went to Genesis and went to Abraham. And to think that Abraham came from a family who worshipped idols, knew nothing of God, did not worship God. And he says, Abraham, I'm choosing you. And out of you, the nation of Israel, my chosen people. And you will be a blessing to the earth. And out of you, the seed, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, would come. And so I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7 is God declares this to uh, the nation of Israel, his people. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Chapter 7 verses 6 through 9. We have some more insight into this in God choosing his people. And I want you to pay attention to what he says in verse 6. For you are a people. Holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. When you read that, you go, wow, there's some purpose for why God does what he does. But then I would object, and I read Romans chapter 9, and I struggled because it says in verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing 
either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. It is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And I would go, God, that is not fair. I would tell God that. I had no shame in telling him that because I had a lot of pride in my life. I wanted control of my life. Thomas Jefferson told us in this country that we have certain unalienable rights. Correct? Think about this. God chooses no one because they're holy or because they have some inalienable rights. The people who God chooses are all sinners. We have no rights. He is holy and righteous. We are wicked, sinful people, yet we don't want to believe that. And it's clear in Scripture that we are. Have you thought about this? There is no obligation for God to choose anyone. Because we're all sinful and he is holy and righteous. Go and read Romans chapter 3. As I read through that night, I got to Romans chapter 3. And it said that no one is righteous and no one seeks God. And in verses 10 through 18, it's like, whoa, all this evidence. There's no way that one day I just go, bing, God, I choose you. On my own, apart from the Holy Spirit. And I don't think that we talk about God's justice enough We want to talk about God's love, but we don't want to talk about God's justice. If God is holy and righteous and all-loving and he's just, then a just God must punish those who have broken his commands and laws, and he must punish them. And we know from the book of Romans that the punishment is death, eternal separation from God for eternity. That's a just God. So there's nothing in him that obligates him to choose anyone, but by his grace, he does. And that is what should strike us this morning. The question really should be, why would God pour out his grace on anyone? And yet we read in Scripture, if you go back to Ephesians where we're at, that God freely chooses to pour out his grace upon sinners. We see that in chapter 2. He doesn't require anything of us. He does the work. And so the real issue is not why God chooses, but why would God choose any? Why would God choose Abraham, an idol worshiper? Why would God choose Moses, who murdered someone? Or go read Acts chapter 9. Why would God dare choose the apostle Paul, who was on his way to go and persecute more Christians, throw them in jail, cast his vote so that Christians could be killed for the name of Christ, and yet on the road to Damascus, there's no explanation. God blinds him. God stops him. And he says, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. And a couple days later, God sends this guy to a Paul and says, hey, I've chosen him to do my work. Paul had nothing in him to stop what he was doing and just say, oh, Jesus, I'm on your team. God chose him and stopped him in his tracks. And I believe that's what God does to us when he saves us. And so you have to ask the question, go back in verse 4 here. When did all this choosing of the elect happen? What's it say in verse 4? Before what? Before creation, before the foundation of the world. How many of you have read scripture or heard about the book of life? You ever heard that term before? Anyone? 
Okay, so there is the book of life, which you read uh, uh, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 21 are two places where it says that um, those whose names are not in the book of life will be thrown into hell, the lake of fire for eternity. But there are people who have their names in the book of life that will be with Jesus in heaven for eternity. Well, if you go back to Revelation chapter 17, verse 8, talking about the beast and, and, and these things here and them worshiping, the people worshiping the beast, it says this, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So God chose and placed names in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And I tell you again, I struggled and fought with God over this for a long time. But then I came to the end of verse 4, and it takes it away. The whole purpose in all that God does that I may not completely understand is this. The purpose of election is this, verse 4, that we should be what? Holy and what? Blameless before him in love. Something we cannot do. We cannot make ourselves holy. We cannot be blameless before God. And therefore, God in his love, he's the one who does this work so that we can be, for his purpose, holy and blameless before him. And look at verse 4, it continues on. In love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Again, God's plan... Um, I mean, you think about building plans for a building, like even like this one. I look on the back wall, I see building plans for this future sanctuary there, whatever. We could go in and I could complain to whoever wrote all these plans and say, hey, this is horrible plans. We don't have enough room of this. We don't have that. We need all these things there. And to think about this, that God had a plan before he ever created the, the universe that was to save people from sins. Again, it's one of those things when I'm telling him, God, you're not fair. I don't like this. I don't like these words. I'm telling him, God, your plan is horrible. And really, I have no right to. But I'm just trying to give you a picture of what my life has been before I came to the book of Romans. <clears throat> and so as I read through Romans, I got to Romans chapter 8. Some of you know this verse. It's, I love to camp out on this verse, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? good. God is good. He's good all the time. He's good to me. He's done all kinds of good for me. And I love there, but I didn't want to go to verse 29 or 30. Let's just stay at Romans 28. God is good. He's worked all things together for me. So whatever trouble, it's going to be good one day. You, you tell your bro that brother and sister, brother, sister, it's okay. Whatever you're suffering through, you know what? God uses it for his good. And that sounds so trivial and, and things there. And I'd camp with that because I didn't like 29 or 30. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. 
Those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. We have this word predestined there here in the text in Ephesians today in chapter 1, verse 5, and verse 11, and here in Romans 8, in verse 29. And this word predestined means to determine beforehand, to mark out beforehand. And again, uh, we struggle with this, or you may struggle with you. Some of you might go, Pastor Paul, you've got all kinds of struggles. I don't have any with this. But I've struggled with these things. But then as I studied verse 29 and 30 of Romans 8, verse 30 is something that's in Latin they call the ordo salutis or this order of salvation. When you read what God does, it's amazing. It says that he predestined us, this doctrine of election, if you want to say that, that God had this plan before time. And then it says that he called us so the Holy Spirit regenerates our heart. We hear the gospel. We respond in faith and we're converted. So whether you walk the aisle, said, I believe in you, Jesus. Jesus, come into my heart. The Holy Spirit did that work so you could believe. And then it says we're justified that legally before God our sins are forgiven. We're given the righteousness of Christ We're adopted as his children. What a glorious thing to think. In adoption today, the parents go and they adopt a child. We never find a place where, if you got a story of it, I'd love to hear it, but a child going through a book. I like those parents. They got a five-bedroom house. They got this. I'm going to their house. No. God the Father adopted us in love. And so as he does this marvelous, glorious work of salvation and justifies us and forgives us and adopts us, he sanctifies us and continues to work in our life till the day when it says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. And oh, do we look forward to the day of glorification, right? We're like, Jesus, come now. I want to be with you. I want to be in that glorified state. I want to be with you for eternity. And so I'm like, all right, God, I see, I see verse 29 and 30. And then I said, God, if that's true, I'm in ministry. I'm a pastor. Why should I even preach the gospel to anyone? You got a plan. You chose them. You predestined them. You called them. Why should I even do that? And then I got to Romans chapter 10. And I was like, oh. Verse 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And if you read the verses before, he says, who's going to hear? Who's going to go and tell them? And it's so humbling to think that God would use a believer to go and tell other people the good news. It's just crazy. God would use us, but that's part of his plan. And that's his plan, and he's sovereign, and his plan is good and glorious, and we are called by Paul to praise him for that. So look at verse 6 back in Ephesians here. It says, regarding the Father's work, to the praise of his glorious grace which, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. So you may not understand completely everything, and you still may have some uh, opposition as we read these words. And even what I've even presented to you, the Apostle Paul says, we are to praise the Father for his plan. So we must do that. So not only has the Father blessed us, but let's look at the second point here in verses 7 to 12. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son has redeemed us. The Son has redeemed us, and we must ask the question here when we read in verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. We were just singing about that, about nothing nothing but the blood of Jesus a few minutes ago. It says the forgiveness of our trespasses. The word redemption here means to buy back or to ransom, that Jesus bought us with His shed blood at the cross. And I read a story 
about slavery in the South, in this country, so many years ago, such a horrible thing. There was a young woman on a slave trading block, and there was a farmer who was bidding on her, and every time he would bid, she would cringe because she knew that he was so brutal to his slaves. And there was a plantation owner who started bidding and outbidding him, and eventually the plantation owner purchased this young girl as his slave. And he put the money down and he walked away. And the young slave girl started going after him, and, 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 and as I read this, it just struck me that he turns to her and says, you misunderstand. I did not buy you because I need a slave. I bought you to set you free. And she fell to her knees and said, I will serve you all the days of my life. Church, that is the picture of the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. God needs none of us, but he chose us to be his, and he adopted us, and he died for us in our place for our sins. What a glorious thing. Oh, our hearts should be, God, I will serve you all the days of my life because of your great love for me. And so it is important as we look at the redemption, the redeeming work of Christ, uh, that we would know and be reminded that in us, born into this world as sinful people, there's nothing in us that would ever stop us in our tracks and say, I believe in you. And so some people believe this manner in a sense of salvation this way or believe in Christ. That like someone walking out the door, they trip over the threshold and they just get up on their own power. Jesus, I just one day decided to follow you. Some people believe that. And some people believe they, they fall into a, a hole and they, it's too tall for them to crawl out. And so Jesus is standing there with his hand out. And the person though goes, you know what? But I took your hand, Jesus, and I pulled myself out. I believe in you. But what I believe is the proper uh, position for us to believe in in salvation is I was walking on, a, on the edge of a cliff and I was walking and I slipped and fell and I was dashed on the rocks below and my heart stopped beating and the blood stopped flowing and I was dead. And Jesus came and gave me life. Just as he called Lazarus from the tomb, Jesus gave me life. Because as we'll see in two weeks, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 5 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that glorious? Isn't that the thing that should cause us, Lord, I want to serve you all the days of my life just because of your great love for me? Because I believe if God left the choosing of him up to us on our own power, um, we would only choose wickedness and sin forever. And therefore, we need the Holy Spirit, John chapter 3, to make us born again, to give us a new heart so that we would see the gospel is glorious and believe in Jesus. Colossians 1.20 says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We receive peace with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we look at verses 7 and through 11 here, this is something that we will expand on during the weeks to come. But it says in verse 7, pay attention, according to the riches of his grace. Not out of his riches, but according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished, poured upon us 
in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery. And Paul will address this more. And when you read through the letters of the New Testament, when he speaks of the mystery, he speaks of the mystery of Jesus Christ being revealed to us now that we can know the work and plan of God through the redeeming work of Jesus, his son. But it says here in verse 11, in him, in him, in Christ, just as the Father adopted us, <clears throat> it says we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, there it is again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In him, in Jesus, we have an inheritance because we're adopted children of God, a work that God does to make us his own It's a glorious thing to think that one day we will be glorified and we will be with Jesus face to face. It's not about the streets of gold in heaven and how glorious those things may see when we read the description of the new heavens and the new earth. It's all about being with God and having that relationship with him being face to face as a friend speaks to a friend. And so look at verse 12. Here's what he says. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We praise God for the work of Christ redeeming us from our sin. Well, let's look here in verse 13 through 14 of Ephesians 1. This last point, the Spirit has sealed us. We have the work of the Father, we have the work of the Son, and now we have the work of the Holy Spirit. The sealing work of the Holy Spirit. And here's what he says in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Here we have again that Romans 8, 29 and 30, this process, this work of salvation, that when the Holy Spirit works on us, that when he heard the word of truth, the gospel, we believed and we were sealed. And this is a promise. To think that Jesus told the disciples that the Holy Spirit would come and the promise of the Holy Spirit to seal us. And if God makes these promises, he always keeps them or he's not God and he's a great liar. I was praying this week that you would have great encouragement to know that the Holy Spirit seals us when we're saved. And that God is so mighty and awesome and powerful that he does not lose his people. I used to believe that you could lose your salvation, that once I was saved, that once I sinned far enough and ran as far enough away from God that he, you know, I would no longer be saved, and I cannot find any proof for it at all in Scripture. I continue to come back to passages like John chapter 10 where Jesus says he knows his sheep. John chapter 10, verse 27 through 30, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And yet I used to believe that Satan could snatch a person out of the Father's hand. That a person could lose their salvation. And if so, I was just calling God a liar because he's promised to seal us. And there is so much more. I hope you can see the weight of the scripture here today. And we get some opportunity over the weeks to come to spend more time in Ephesians. I can't tell you I have answers to every single question. I don't even understand everything exactly as God lays it out for us in scripture. But I pray that we continue to grow in our understanding. 
And this week I was reminded and comforted by a passage in Romans chapter 11. And I want to read this as we close. Here's what it says about God and what we know about Him. Romans 11, verse 33 through 36. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And we say amen. God is so mighty, so powerful, so awesome. We cannot comprehend his mind. As the worship team comes forward and as we take communion together, those who are going to serve are going to come forward. Pastor Sean's going to come up here and lead us in that. I want to remind you of three verses here that we read today. Three times the Apostle Paul says, praise God. Verse 6, regarding the Father's choice, he says, to praise the, to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 12, in response to the Son's work of redemption, he says, to the praise of His glory. And in verse 14, the third time, in assurance of the Holy Spirit's sealing work in our life, he says, to the praise of His glory. I pray this morning that you praise God because He's done a work of salvation in your life. If you are not saved and today, God's revealing great, wonderful truths to you, and He's saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So... However God reveals it to you, he calls you. And as I pointed out last week with the ministry of reconciliation, I plead and beg with you to believe in Jesus and leave the saving work up to him as he's promised to do. Father, we praise your name. We lift you high. We thank you that you are the one who's had a plan, a great plan of love. We thank you, Jesus for redeeming us from our sins. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for sealing us and empowering us to walk in ways of righteousness. Father, may you be glorified in our lives and may we praise you for the work that you've done. In Jesus' name.